0: Good evening. I think actually after um, today's news in the Financial Times I should be ringing a bell to announce the start of this uh, lecture since the uh, FT reported this morning that the London Stock Exchange was thinking of copying the uh, New NYSE with a a bell to open trading but um, no doubt Xavier will tell us whether that's true uh, or not or just uh, a normal piece of um, FT imaginative writing. but we're delighted to welcome Xavier Rolle here this evening, who's been the CEO of the London Stock Exchange since May of this year. Um, <coughs> he took over from Clara Furs, who had been there for a number of years, and I'm afraid I have to tell you that he has um, a particular drawback Uh, really taking over from Clara Furs and that's not because uh, it's not a sexist observation I'm making here but it's that Clara Furs was an LSE alumni um, which sadly uh, Xavier uh, is not Um, he was at uh, Columbia Business School where he did his uh, MBA uh, and of course in France before that before joining the Stock Exchange he worked for a number of firms in the city Goldman's, Credit Suisse, dresdner Kleinwort benson and Lehman Brothers, some of which still exist. <laughs> and um, was in too. fact a global head of uh, equity trading at <coughs> Lehman Brothers for a while. But it's taken over uh, at a very interesting time, I think, both, of course, for financial markets generally and the economy generally, but also a particularly interesting time for the future of exchanges and share trading which uh, is in the throes of a competitive dynamic uh, which is i think quite uh, unpredictable uh, quite hard to see how the landscape of equity trading will settle down with the introduction of multilateral trading facilities after the mifid uh, directive and Quite an exciting moment, I think, uh, in the world of equity trading. But uh, you're not here to listen to my thoughts on how that might evolve. You're here to listen to Xavier Hulé. So I'm going to hand over straight to him. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Well, first of all, I would say it is not a bell. Well, not a conventional bell. We'll keep the surprise. I've just said to the BBC. Uh, <clears throat> Secondly, I'm not yet an LSE alumnus. <laughs> I don't know how long that would last, but if they do make me an alumnus, maybe I can come here and take a few courses. Indeed. Will you have me? Indeed. So it's a pleasure. Good evening to all of you. It's a pleasure being here um, to discuss the way forward, building a sustainable recovery and driving growth. That's quite an agenda. Very grateful to Howard for his kind introduction and for offering me a chance to address you tonight here in such a prestigious environment. It is to the great credit of the LSE University that it holds these public lectures. And although I can't match some of your recent speakers uh, for book sales or attractiveness, I hear you you had a speech in Spanish last night. Howard convinced me not to give this one in French. I will try. I hope that my thoughts on this evening's topic will be, will be useful to you. The events of the past two years in the global clear economy clearly have caused even the most ardent free marketers the question of you know what are the foundations of capitalism and are they solid indeed? France that I never thought would say such things have questioned the very basis of our economic system. You can link some of my friends in the United States, which was mostly shocking to me. And again, I speak as someone who has quite a few friends in this business, having worked in financial markets all over the world for uh, more than 27 years. However, personally, I do not believe that this was a crisis of capitalism, the economy as a whole, or even a crisis of financial services. In my analysis, this was a crisis of excessively leveraged debt, opaque securitization and frankly loose monetary policy with a few regulatory issues coming on top. I come to this debate from the view that markets are not and certainly never have been flawless for sure. They are very simply the most efficient mechanism for matching capital to growth. We certainly cannot and have not in the past succeeded at entirely removing crises from the system. Irrational, exuberance, to quote one expression, will certainly continue to be part of the market as long as it's part of human nature. However, we can seek to build a sustainable financial framework which is able to better absorb these shocks. That is why I believe we need a new conception of, quote-unquote, the good economy, one built around sustainable outcomes, And so I would like to use this evening to talk about how we can build systems able to sustain our flawed but precious market economy. I would like to focus on three key areas. First of all, some thoughts on the causes of this crisis. Then what might a new economic settlement look like? And finally, the steps that will take us there. As you might expect from the CEO I'm happy to advertise its continuing largest stock exchange. I believe these steps will include a rediscovery of the benefits of equity funding and also the exchange model, and in particular the model's integral qualities of transparency, neutrality, and liquidity. Europe has had a tradition of funding growth through bank lending, frankly, rather than through equity markets a tradition which has been reflected in bank balance sheets. Over the years, policymakers and central banks have worked to ensure that this lending was economically economically sustainable. Historically, the preferred method of controlling lending was to introduce controls over interest rates, which clearly can be a blunt instrument and are almost inevitably used too late. In the longer term, we need to build a sustainable, diversified funding ecosystem which reflects a greater role for equity markets as a significant mechanism for raising capital alongside the existing culture of debt finance. This will not be a question of regulation. Restricting lending will actually create added and unwelcome barriers for business. It will be a question of ensuring that capital markets infrastructure Is as efficient as possible in its crucial task of matching investors, companies, entrepreneurs, and innovators. We have to work to recognize the important benefits of bringing products on exchange, both in the US and in Europe, but for differing reasons. In the US, capital markets are widely used, but not enough has been done on transparent exchanges. In the EU, Both transparency and levels of exchange trading are lower than they should be. The current crisis gives us many examples of these problems and is an excellent place to begin. This crisis, in effect, was what we call a double bubble of credit and asset prices, which devastated the wholesale financial markets as a result of the complexity and opacity of securitization and failures in risk evaluation. It grew with what now appears to be inevitability from the combination of suppressed interest rates and low returns on many long-term investments. I'd like to draw your attention to what I view as an important historical event. Eleven years ago, a hedge fund called Long-Term Capital Management, LTCM, collapsed. It is important in any discussion of this crisis not least because it was the last time a crisis could be solved by the intervention of the other market participants alone, but significantly the response of U.S. policymakers to the collapse of LTCM was to offer three sharp cuts in interest rates. In total, between 2000 and 2003, the Fed cut interest rates from 6.5 to 1%, and they remained low, creating a false sense of permanence in monetary policy. The result was an asset price bubble in housing as mortgages became far more accessible. The limiting factor swiftly became how many mortgages the originators could afford to offer rather than how many people wanted and could get a mortgage. And just as individuals and corporations were seduced by low interest rates, banks geared themselves up in order to improve return Every financial crisis since the war, with the exception to a large degree of the dot-com boom, has been a variation on this thing. Excessive leverage creates a bubble, which is then burst by a rise in interest rates and a collapse in market confidence. Running parallel to this abundance of cheap debt, the growth of China and the new economies on the strength of exports to the West created trade imbalances and a surplus of dollars which were invested in the safest possible place, U.S. Treasury bills. The result was a fall in the yields available to investors. Inevitably, in this low-yield environment, the more ambitious and enterprising asset managers began to search for alternative investments. They sought the higher returns demanded by a competitive industry in a society whose aging demographics demanded significant returns on investment. These two great old tankers, a housing price bubble, and a wholesale market searching for the next big win, crashed into each other through the development of the originate-to-distribute securitization pipeline. This basic process, which is known as securitization, is an entirely valid means of dispersing risk. But more and more complex and geared products were devised which relied on flawed assumptions and rating agency modeling which suggested that the underlying assets namely property loans were basically safe. (coughs) Mortgage providers were reaching further down the socioeconomic chain offering greater numbers of subprime loans which became packaged into more risky securities. By 2003 indeed the number of mortgage applicants rejected had halved to just 14% and subprime packed bonds grew into a trillion-dollar market. With hindsight, of course, we can see that the decision of U.S. regulators in 2004 to lower capital buffers increased further the amount of leverage swelling through the system. This decision meant investment banks could hold 1.6 percent capital against these investments rather than 8 percent. That's just $16,000 a million 2001 three years before this change Merrill Lynch's leverage for example the leverage ratio was 16 to 1 by 2007 three years later it had risen to 32 to 1 Morgan Stanley and Bear Stearns were leveraged even higher at 33 to 1 if you care to know Lehman Brothers was 35 to and then suddenly the game changed The debt-fueled bubble burst in 2006. Interest rates rose above above 5% here and and in the U.S. Consumers started to find their mortgages unaffordable. House prices on both sides of the Atlantic fell by over 20%. Defaults grew on a truly astonishing scale. The banks prized cash cows were certainly worthless. The result was devastation played out daily across the markets. AIG, who were one of the principal insurers uh, in the market, collapsed into the arms of the U.S. taxpayer. Bay of Stearns was acquired by J.P. Morgan, and Lehman, well, we all know what happened there. In Iceland, a whole economy built on a financial sector invested in these markets declared itself effectively bankrupt, taking large amounts of British savings with it. British banks, who were heavily invested in the securities queued up to announce record losses. The Chancellor, with our most distinguished bankers, found themselves gathered, shell-shocked, staring into the abyss. But the actions they took seem to have averted a global depression. And despite continuing economic challenges, attention has turned to how we plan for a recovery that can deliver sustainable growth. I'm not here, however, to offer a a defense of the decisions and behaviors which led to the crisis. Instead, I'd like to focus on how we can put the right, the problems of the past economic cycle, and redouble the efforts of a sector that remains hugely valuable to us all. I would just like to highlight that at the start of the crisis, financial services only accounted for less than 8% of the total GDP of the UK. But provided twenty seven percent of its corporation tax and 15 percent of its income tax, famous bonuses. Despite serious problems, it remains a vital sector, punching well above its weight for the UK. The real concern lies in the fact that over the last decade, manufacturing fell by over a third. The challenge to me is clear, not in how we restrain a bloated industry, but how we refocus financial services on funding and supporting balanced growth across the UK and the European Union. In this context, the crisis has exposed the limits of excess leverage by demonstrating its brutal nature in a falling market. It is clear that we need to find greater balance in our economy towards equity as a means of increasing the funding options for business, and also encouraging a savings culture in the UK through investment in UK PLC. Let me be clear, though, that finance is not necessarily a bad thing. But debt, lent to unreliable customers, secured against volatile assets, securitized and priced using dubious methodology, leveraged again and again and again and funded using wholly unpredictable short-term credit markets, is indeed a recipe for economic disasters. There are actually two issues here. First, investors came to see debt instruments as having superior returns on investment. Traditionally, equities will provide better long-term returns than basic government and corporate bonds, pretty much 99% of the time. But bonds built from securitized debt and, indeed, leverage quasi-insurance products, like my own personal favorite, credit default swaps, seem to offer greater returns than the stock market, but clearly they are also much more volatile. Investors must be far more restrained and retain a longer-term focus in the returns they expect. Secondly, cheap interest rates for retail customers and the wholesale market, coupled with a tax system, particularly in the UK, which makes debt hugely efficient, encourage this credit bubble. We cannot sustain interest rates at today's levels without laying the foundation's for the next bubble. Greenspan's put, as we refer to it in financial markets, was effective at restabilizing the economy, just as it appears Bernanke's put has been as well. But if we wait until we see evidence of a bubble before raising the rates, as was the case in 2006 on both sides of the Atlantic, we may find ourselves repeating the events of the past 18 months. Of course, the impact of debt on the downside would be lessened if a greater proportion of our economy was financed through the other financing financing mechanism available to us, which is equity. The key difference between equity and debt is that equity financiers are incentivized to follow their money and support companies during a downturn rather than seize the assets. To use our markets as an example, we saw equity raising this year in excess of 106 billion pounds, the vast majority in further issues, as companies started to repair and rebuild their balance sheets with the significant support of their existing investors. Equity finance for companies and equity investment by individuals are really, frankly, the two sides of the same coin, fundamental to economic growth and prosperity in a modern society. On the one hand, equity finance plays a vital role in supporting ventures, large and small, by helping companies meet their various needs for capital. On the other, it provides strong, sustainable investment returns. It is an investment in jobs, wealth creation, and in tax generation. It is the mechanism that matches capital to opportunity efficiently, the economy's engine of growth. The decline of manufacturing in the UK has a number of causes, most notably the difficulties in competing on price with the new economies. But the manufacturing sectors of the future, biotechnology, advanced engineering, and clean tech, for example, will rely significantly on equity funding. I said earlier that a tax paid by financial services was a significant percentage of the national total. In simple figures, it's just under about... 30 billion pounds. In comparison, the total tax paid by companies in the FTSE 100, all of whom are in part equity funded, is around 78 billion pounds a year. (coughs) Now, That is more than the government's combined spend on housing, defense, and transport. Equity finance is a powerful tool indeed for delivering sustainability. At the height of the crisis, the FTSE 100 lost 48% of its value, but the shares remain liquid, the prices transparent. Now, the market has returned to nearly about 80% of its peak value. Fundamentally, with a direct equity investment, you can only lose the value you invested and are not so heavily leveraged that a move in interest rates would cripple, cripple your balance sheet. But as the IMF argued in June this year, the balance of debt to equity has been significantly affected by the systemic bias of our tax system. And this bias was a contributory factor to the crisis, distorting corporate finance behaviors towards excessive leverage through what amounts to a significant subsidization of debt. In the UK, debt costs are tax deductible, while equity capital is taxed four times its life cycle at purchase through stamp duty, corporation tax, dividend income, and capital gains on sale. It is not clear why such an extraordinary situation has come about, but as long as it remains in place, the leverage imbalance will remain. And there is an additional problem, and that is of domestic indebtedness. The UK has a significantly higher level of personal debt than many other countries, double the levels in the stock exchange, London Stock Exchange, a system market company in Italy, Borsa Italiana, for example. I would suggest that this stark difference points toward a lack of tradition of financial capability and domestic financial management. We would certainly like to see, and not just because it would mean more business, the London Stock Exchange shareholders, the growth of the citizen investor as it already exists, for example, in Italy. And the way that the majority of investors access equity, the exchange model, has significant qualities of its own, which could be employed to great systemic benefits across a wider range of assets. This model enables efficient interaction between investor capital and business entrepreneurialism. But it also has crucial benefits for the structure of the market, including relative simplicity, product standardization, and perhaps even more importantly, clarity for investors. But I will focus on three key benefits in particular, which I believe underpin the wider advantages of the model. Transparency, liquidity, and neutrality, starting with transparency. Sunshine, as we all know, is often the very best disinfectant. most universal benefit of the exchange model is its inherent transparency, which can refer to the visibility of trades, of asset prices, or the structure of the assets themselves, or even in the disclosure requirements that regulators and exchanges impose on their listed companies. Off-exchange trading can result in significant structural inefficiencies in favor of groups with greater access and information. Compare, for example, the relative cheapness of asset price information on the stock exchange to the cost of engaging the team of advisors necessary to value a collateralized debt obligation, for example. And there are systemic implications to a lack of transparency. In comparison to the informal inefficiencies of over-the-counter, or OTC as we call them, uh, markets, the exchange mechanism provides real-time and unarguable market pricing data. Movements' prices are therefore easy to see, allowing the market to absorb them on a live basis. Shocks are less damaging. The stringent disclosure and corporate governance requirements ensure that price-sensitive information is released promptly to be interpreted and contextualized by the network of professionals which has developed to support the market. Bear Stearns, for example, offers an excellent example of the problems of asset price opacity. When Merrill Lynch, one of Bear's principal creditors, became concerned with their business model and threatened to sell the CDO uh, assets against which their debt was secured, even the possibility Of a mark to market price terrified the market. The difference between the assumed value of the assets and the real market price was likely, in that case in particular, to be very significant. Equally, the growth of off balance sheet vehicles highlights crucial problems of transparency and capitalization. Investors, managers, rivals, and regulators must be able to see as accurately as possible the risk profiles of banks with whom they operate. In the general sense, the suitability of capital requirements at 8% is the subject of industry debate. But when that 8% doesn't reflect the most at-risk assets the bank holds, and indeed assets which become impossible to value the moment the market loses liquidity, we cannot hope to have a sustainable economic system. Second characteristic was liquidity. And that refers to the ease with which an asset can be bought and sold. Lots of buyers and sellers means obviously a liquid market. It is far from a purely technical concern. It has very direct implications for the price formation mechanism and therefore <coughs> investor returns. The large gap or spread. Between the prices at which buyers will bid and sellers sell a share is a significant cost for illiquid stocks. For example, a couple thousand BP shares bought for around 11,000 pounds and then immediately sold will incur spread costs of just about two pounds. But a similar size deal in a relatively illiquid stock would incur a spread cost of around 130 pounds. Tremendous leverage between the two. Perhaps more importantly, The spread cost, when shares are sold, is priced into the amount that an investor will be willing to pay for a company when it first sells its shares to investors. Put more simply, an illiquid market between investors will significantly reduce the growth funding available to companies and employers across the UK. And during the crisis, the liquidity was constant. It did not evaporate as it did on the OTC markets third point is neutrality these benefits of liquidity and transparency are matched by a commitment to neutrality market participants can be confident that the system on which they rely has not been designed to the advantage of any particular user, this is very important buyer seller or part of the infrastructure nor does the exchange use its access to price-sensitive information to trade from an advantaged position. Some might refer to that as the old specialist system, for example. The exchange provides a high-quality venue in which everybody has the opportunity to participate on a democratic footing. OTC markets and counterparty risk. And When we look at OTC markets, These characteristics can seem somewhat abstract. I would like to convince you that they are actually nothing of the sort. As we began by talking about the problems in the securitization process, I will talk in applied terms about how the exchange model can offer significant advantages to many derivatives products currently traded on the OTC market. These derivatives include the mortgage backed securities mentioned earlier, but also many bespoke products structured to allow businesses to carry out hugely complicated financing. The big debate in finance is how much of this derivative market can be brought on exchange and how much can be cleared through a central counterparty, known in our jargon as a CCP, which acts as an intermediary between the buyer and seller, offering security of settlement for both. Certainly the disciplines of transparency, price discovery and liquidity that a visible market imposes would bring immense benefits, as would the counterparty risk management provided by CCP. When Lehman Brothers defaulted, central counterparties achieved nearly complete resolution of all open centrally cleared position within less than 15 trading days. Compare this to the lengthy process of unwinding the OTC positions, which, by the way, is still ongoing. At the moment, only 10% of the derivatives market is trading on exchange. The transparency of standardizable products could be significantly enhanced by regulated exchange trading. But of course, the benefits of the model are not a panacea either, and there are many derivatives products for which neither exchange trading nor clearing through a CCP are suitable. The CCP's which act as counterparty to both sides on an exchange deal protecting both against the risk of the other not completing the transaction, do so by collecting a margin based on the potential loss in the event of a default. For a stock, this typically might be in the region of about 20%. 20%. For a bespoke derivative, though, particularly in a case of binary risk products, like credit default swaps, this might potentially be as high as 100% of the position in some cases. Accurately pricing this risk is a significant barrier to central clearing of any non-standardized products. Attempts to make these assets centrally cleared would therefore be very possibly technically unachievable and certainly have the effect of centralizing risk in a vital piece of market infrastructure. We'd like to offer a warning in that context that this course of action could turn CCP's into a significant source of future systemic risk. Clearinghouses carry counterparty risks far in excess of the balance sheets of all the banks combined and do not benefit from guarantees from the state that they would act as lender of last resort in the event of a shock, particularly in this country. I would ask policymakers to think very carefully about what parts of the OTC market abroad in exchange and also about how a race to the bottom for CCP margins can indeed be avoided. And I believe there is a need for serious thought about whether governments should extend the lender of last resort protection to CCP's. There is no value to protecting the industry from market forces, and fees should not be subject to the same protection as the risk margins charge. But I would warn that it is no one's interest for fees and margins to become so low that CCP's cease to be sustainable or even a potential element for systemic risk transmission. We must balance the need for competition with the need to preserve sustainable and well-capitalised CCB institutions. Additionally, as with the broader regulation of financial services, we need almost desperately harmonisation in regulatory structures, funding mechanisms, and risk management frameworks for these clearing houses and depositories. The key is to assign the most appropriate trading mechanism for each type of asset. Many derivatives, in fact, are not suitable for exchange trading. But for many others, exchange trading would offer the huge and structurally important benefits of transparency, liquidity, neutrality, and standardization. In conclusion, I would like to just make a few short points. First of all, the process of recovery and recapitalization from this crisis is far from over nearly $600 trillion of untransparent OTC products remain in the financial system, ten times the value of the total annual economic output of the world. Banks remain some distance from their recapitalization targets. Balanced funding policies are not in place, and although the savings ratio for the UK is certainly headed back in the right direction, we certainly cannot assume that the era of giant flat screen TVs and ninja loans is past. We will not have repaired our financial system from this crisis until these issues are addressed. But preventing a recurrence is the greater challenge. At the beginning, I suggested we needed to reconsider the characteristics of the good economy. I might suggest profitable, sustainable, ethical, accessible, self sufficient, and transparent. I'm sure you have some of your own, but these are the ones I could come up with. These characteristics don't include the absence of failure. Expansion and contraction of the markets is unavoidable, and to some degree a political rather than economic issue, and I suspect an unsolvable one at that. But the peculiar characteristic of excessive leverage is to accelerate the effects of failure in a systemic event. If long-term capital management was the last crisis, the market itself could afford to repair. The credit crisis was the last one within the gift of the taxpayer. And so we must take responsibility for building a new approach to funding both business and investment. Equity finance and the exchange model stand ready. The transparency, neutrality and liquidity they bring can be the basis of a sustainable financial settlement for us all. Thank you very much for your attention.
0: Thank you. Well, the um, the motto of transparency, liquidity, come sit back here, and liquidity has a certain kind of liberté, égalité, fraternité echo to it. I felt that although it wasn't in French, it could it could have been. we've got time for questions and the incentive is that anyone who asks a question will be invited up to the fifth floor for a drink afterwards actually anyone who doesn't ask a question will also be invited up to a reception on the fifth floor afterwards Uh, so perhaps the incentive is muted in this case (laughs) yes Uh, so who would like to start yeah Um, if you could wait for a microphone it's on its way to you now if you could give your name that would be great thank you Um, Richard Melville um, from Cellularity Uh, perhaps this is outside the uh, remit of this discussion tonight but uh, as an open source developer I feel obliged to ask this question Uh, the London Stock Exchange recently announced it's supplanted its Microsoft.net framework uh, with an open source GNU Linux alternative Um, I'd be grateful if you could give us some idea of the thinking behind this dramatic move and how you feel that it would benefit the London Stock Exchange
1: I could certainly give you the, the broad lines. Uh, I'm not sure everybody will be interested here in discussing the merits of a managed architectural middleware or the number of servers, <laughs> of throughputs, and latencies. Uh, let me just uh, summarize by saying that our, our secondary market activities are intensely competitive, which is actually is a good thing because you cannot ask for exchanges to represent a solution to transparency um, and and solution to the particular issues posed by OTC trading if you do not provide a competitive framework properly priced and efficient. But it's clear today that investors require extremely scalable and extremely cheap technology that processes transactions very, very fast. And the reason why we reviewed our technology architecture, essentially two things. In terms of the technical design, um, the, the peculiarities of the Microsoft managed middleware architecture created such a hardware footprint that the operation and speed and ability for us to innovate with new products was no longer competitive. In other words, our server footprint was substantially bigger uh, considering an equal level of of throughput than new ventures, new constructs. And I would also add that the London Stock Exchange was and still is uh, for a few more months the only exchange in the world operating and managed architecture middleware. So it was an issue for us of cost, which was no longer competitive, due to an excessive hardware footprint, uh, a lack of throughput. I'm happy to give you some statistics if you care. But you know we were at 4,000 messages per second. The new Linux C++ platforms were at a quarter million. You know, they were less millisecond, less than a millisecond latencies. We were about 3.7 to 4 millisecond latencies. And some of those competitors, just won't mention names, but we maintain about 1,100 servers in our data center to process our, our secondary transactions. And those 1,100 servers gave us a capacity of about 50 million uh, uh, orders per day. And as sort of the benchmark in terms of the sort of new MTFs or or new technologies rolled out in the last 18 months was about a couple hundred servers um, handling 2.5 to 3 billion uh, orders a day. So delta in terms of throughput, delta in terms of latencies, and the cost base of maintaining such a system were no longer competitive. Hence, the decision which was a priority for us and took the first three months, uh, me taking over as the CEO, um, the first three months of my time, at least the bulk of my time, was to identify a new technology solution. I hope I answered your question.
0: Thank you. Uh, Right at the back uh, there, Blue Shirt. Hello. Just to move off the intensely technical points, um, I think from.
1: I actually tried to spare you the technical part. <laughs> oh, God, really.
0: Um, from the outside, talk, looking at the, the crisis that we just or could still be going through, one of the things that seemed to be critical was the idea that even leaders were relying on experts to know what they were doing even, and without being sure. And one of the things that you mentioned was that a growth of a citizen investor to the markets. I just thought, would, would it be possible to expand on that idea and why you think it's, it's, it's an important thing for us to be looking at?
1: Yeah, I mean, if I, if I can give you the broad framework, um, it's clear that the traditional way, particularly in Europe, to fund economic growth, i.e. to invest and create jobs, has been to recycle excess capital generated by the industrial and service economy by the banking system. And that banking system provides leverage, which is reflected on the bank's balance sheet. And that's a good thing, because if you don't have leverage, basically the, the pace of economic growth and job creation would be a lot lot smaller. But when that leverage is excessive, you get into a crisis where banks need to repair their balance sheet, you then go into negative leverage. Because not only will they stop lending, but they will keep replenishing their balance sheet until the level at which they feel comfortable enough Starting to lend. So it may be some time, even beyond the time at which they've actually replenished their balance sheet, where that positive leverage comes into play. And what we're arguing is saying this is not, if you regulate the levels of leverage properly, this is not a bad system. But what, and it's, it's proven to be quite productive over the last 50 years. But what you need is to diversify a little bit away from that sort of singular way of, of, of funding economic growth by putting in place the mechanism by which available pools of capital can be directed to those who need it. And I'll give you an example so that you don't think my answer is a bit verbose and theoretical. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about one interesting market. We're going to launch in a couple of months an initiative to create a retail-enabled corporate fixed-income market in the UK. No such thing today. There are a lot of retail investors in the UK today searching for yield. You, sir, might be looking for yield yourself to invest your investments. Maybe not today as a student, but in a few years when you engage on your career. If you give your money to a bank, you're going to get half a percent, if that. There are some excellent companies out there offering returns of six, seven, eight, nine percent. We have our own bond listed in the wholesale market, uh, which came out at nine and an eighth, you know, earlier, basically in the year, at times where yield went much higher. So there is demand. There's capital available looking for yields. There is the need on the corporate side, particularly the small and mid-sized enterprises, to raise that finance, which could be raised directly from retail investors. Now, it could be individuals making that decision, or it can be financial intermediaries handling the needs of retail investors. But today that is not happening for a simple reason. is that a retail investor who wants to buy a corporate bond cannot see where this bond is trading. They cannot see the inside bid and offer. They cannot see how well it trades. They cannot see how it's traded in the last few years. So there is no confidence. There is no transparency. There is no neutrality and liquidity, at least not that that is obvious to the eye, to the naked eye. So they won't invest. And similarly, the the, the corporate uh, uh, issuers or the companies seeking to invest today will turn to a bank, and unless they are the bluest of the blue chip or have a very solid balance sheet, they're very unlikely to get any finance or else the cost will be prohibitive. I I hear small business owners uh, calling for capital asked to pay rates of 20% from large banks. So there is that pool of capital available. There is the need for good companies to issue debt finance and it's the same issue for equities. And we believe that by building a transparent, neutral, again, an exchange is a neutral entity. It sits between the corporate issuers, the wholesale, on a large scale, medium, and, and small size. Capital markets are, are effectively a contradiction. I mean, it's a, it's a conflict of interest wrapped in a contradiction. The conflict of interest is you got buyers and sellers, issuers and investors. And by definition, you need a neutral operator to keep the rule book and to keep the, the operation of that system in, in, in a correct state of play but it's also a contradiction because if it is a monopoly and run for profit, it will extract monopoly rent. If it's a non-monopoly, i.e. a competitive environment, fragmentation can actually um, detract from efficient pricing. So you need a neutral operator at at the center, and by providing that infrastructure in times where the banks are temporarily out of the economic system, you provide a cheap, efficient, electronic, transparent, neutral way of matching needs for capital with those who have it.
0: Thanks. Uh, right on the front row here, yeah. sort of brown set. Yep, that's it.
1: Hi, uh, thank you for that wonderful lecture. C- could you um,
0: give me a more descriptive idea towards transparency um, for dark pools, high-frequency trading, and short-selling?
1: Okay, dark pools, high-frequency traders and short selling I'll start with the dark pools because transparency in the dark pool a bit of a contradiction in terms dark pools are a little bit of a misnomer in the sense that they translate a need which has always existed since effectively institutional uh, investing um, came to dominate financial market there is a need for risk transference on a whole scale, wholesale scale, wholesale basis. Institutions, corporates, banks, intermediaries, need to transfer very, very large blocks of risks. It could be simple equity of bonds. It can be more complex securities. But in a fashion that if revealed on a, what we call a lit pool, i.e. a traditional exchange, would so substantially unsettle the market that not only would make that transaction impossible, we would also sub- introduce substantial useless volatility in the underlying market. This has always been a trademark of the London marketplace. The reason why London is what it is today in terms of its uh, financial critical mass is because for decades you could get prices from market makers on any commodities, equities, bonds, or any sort of financial instruments from around the world. London developed a market-making risk-intermediation culture, which you did not find so much. In fact, sometimes not at all on the continent, very little in Asia, and also very, very limited in the U.S. So that risk-intermediation culture was always in need of a transfer mechanism between wholesale players, away from the lit retail market, where that risk could be efficiently transferred. And in the uh, post the advent of Reagan MS in the U.S., and MIFID here in October or November 2007, those risk transference venues were described or qualified as dark pools. So they're really only for the use of of wholesale players. And here what we propose as an exchange is rather than have these dark pools operate on the basis of just intermediaries governance, i.e., just bank shareholders or buy-side shareholders, is to put an exchange in there to bring a neutral presence to ensure the rule book doesn't overly favor the interest of this or that constituencies. And even more importantly, in terms of reporting standard, particularly regulatory standard, the presence of an exchange helps achieve a higher standard of not only behavior, but also regulatory reporting. So it's a variance on that. But that need will not go away. If you ban dark pools or if you ban crossing networks, that activity will just move elsewhere. Outside of Europe, outside of the U.S., there there will continue to be a need for for transference of that risk. And and that is also a need that corporate issuers, particularly very large corporations, it's not just necessarily about equities of fixed income. It could be a bespoke foreign exchange transaction. It could be shifting a tax risk from one entity to another. It's many different forms of of Um, transference. High-frequency traders. Um, High-frequency traders, I don't want to speak for them, but I would say by and large, are not great lovers of dark pools. High-frequency traders are statistical traders who, um, frankly, arbitrage away uh, pricing differences, pricing behaviors differences, technological, to the gentleman's questions uh, earlier, technological design differences between venues, fee schedule. They arbitrage any discrepancies, whether it's linked to the underlying investment or to the nature of the venue where they trade and seek to make money. So they need extremely fast but also extremely predictable asset behavior. And for that reason, they like lit pool venues rather than dark pool venues because a dark pool, by definition, is not predictable in terms of having access to, to, to that particular liquidity. So I, I don't think linking dark to HFTs is necessarily the right description. Uh, HFTs would not, frankly, exist I mean, they are a direct result in their current modern incarnation of the fragmentation of financial markets. I mean, the more venues they have, by definition, and this is the contradiction referred to, if you have a single trading venue, by definition, mathematically, you optimize liquidity and optimize or or reduce the, the central spread because all liquidity converges in a single locus. As you get fragmentation... The spreads are going to have tiny little differences. If you can arbitrage the execution latencies, you create a business model. That's what the HFTs are doing. The third point is short selling. That's a very interesting uh, question. Uh, The definition of, I mean, when you say short selling, often you say, think of hedge funds. Short selling, by definition, is an activity you will only engage in if you forecast a very significant profit opportunity. Given the fact that when you short sell, your potential loss is infinite—at least in theory—you're not going to sell short a security if you think you're going to make five or ten percent. So you're going to sell a security short if you expect a very, very significant, or if you expect there's substantial downside—forty, fifty percent—you know that sort of that sort of expected profit. So by definition, short sellers have very strong conviction about the fact that a particular security is mispriced. And if they're right, they will benefit. And if they're right, buyers of that securities will also benefit by buying the security at the right price. So it is it is a necessary function in terms of correct pricing of particular securities if handled in a satisfactory way from a regulatory point of view. I mean, they can be manipulation linked to short selling they can be manipulation linked to, to, to buying of securities. So the, the manipulative behavior in itself is not necessarily linked to that particular activity. But short-selling is also an essential uh, technique, trading technique. For example, without short-selling or the ability to short-sell, you wouldn't have a convertible market. It's simple as that. If you cannot sell a security short, you're not going to be able to place any convertible securities just because of the requirement to, to hedge the delta risk. So it is it is a complex issue. We believe it is a necessary and obviously falls under regulation like any sort of activities, but it is a necessary uh, trading technique to keep markets efficient. Uh, it is also by definition, I mean it is the core definition of what a hedge fund is. The definition of a hedge fund is at least originally is the ability to short. It's nothing else. Coming from that ability to short, obviously, you generate cash, so you need to borrow in order to short, you need to have a margin account, and by definition you uh, extract a funding capability from that short which you convert into leverage. So leverage was the result of the ability to short, but originally a hedge fund was singly an institution which could short. And of course in the context of activism or other sort of campaigns, some of these uh, investment institutions or hedge funds have sort of attracted some bad publicity to their activities. But we think it's important to retain the ability to shorten the market. And in fact, during the financial crisis, markets that banned short-selling saw smaller return and lower valuation than markets that didn't.
0: Thank you. Uh, Yeah, down uh, here, yellow tie. I'm intrigued by the neutrality because you are a shareholder-owned, for-profit organization with shareholder interest of making a profit. So how do you ensure the neutrality in such a circumstance? Well,
1: the fact that you're for-profit with shareholders, being a public company means you're accessible to anyone. So if somebody feels, for example, that they would like to have a stake in, in you, whether they're a wholesale bank, whether they're sovereign fund, or whether an investment fund, have easy public access to the securities. And we publish our numbers and we're regulated, so that transparency and that availability to buy or to sell is a guarantee of neutrality. Which neutrality doesn't mean that we don't run our model for profit. I would hasten to say that uh, and this is this, this could be a question that I get, but I'm seeking to anticipate, if you look at the size of the bonus pool of the London stock Exchange, you realise that we're on a per employee basis definitely not part of the problem. So we're not there to extract monopoly rent. We're in a competitive environment. But what for-profit management does is over a long period of time versus the sort of utility-type management, is it allows to attract employees, and that's management but not just management, employees that are motivated to grow value for their shareholders. And over a long period of time, that drives into improvements of the business model, cost reductions, and innovation. And if we look at some of the largest companies involved in financial infrastructure, not just in Europe but so in the U.S., the ones that are operated so-called as utilities or not-for-profit, and if you call the shareholders but also the clients of such companies, you might find a fairly startling picture in terms of uh, the general level of uh, satisfaction you know, with prices and innovation and in products. It's not that high. Over time, the utility model tends to, not immediately, but tends to innovate less, tends to put itself into question less because of the lack of of competitive pressure. So we believe in competition. We also believe in transparency. And the fact that an institutional asset manager, a wholesale bank, a retail bank, or a sovereign fund can own us also has simple consequences that, Because we are a regulated entity and we can be owned by by any and all financial investors, when we design our rule book, when we look at our structure, we're very careful. Obviously, there is an overarching regulatory obligation and responsibility, but we're very careful not to design anything that seeks to court or to advantage too much the advantage of one particular constituency or another, and it's economic self-interest. Our own shareholder list reflects that diversity. And in that sense that we say that neutrality is important, particularly, of course, as we get into things like dark pools and other crossing networks. It also gives us, in the long run, and we are starting to see the effects of that materializes. For those of you who are interested in our industry, you know there are a number of ongoing transactions that have been discussed in the the press. It gives you a governance stability. Let's say that you have an infrastructure venue that is owned by users and only users that, by the way, happen to be competitors, over time, their ability sitting around the table to agree on a business model, to agree on management changes, to agree on on strategic um, developments, on new product uh, introductions, on any sort of of, uh, new developments affecting the company, is looked at not just from the prism of, of, and in fact, less and less looked at from the prism of, of, of economic validity, but more in terms of those users' self-interest. And it becomes more and more difficult over time to agree on the the long-term governance and and business direction of that entity. And it is for that reason that some entities, and we've seen some of them recently, are being put up for sale. One of the reasons why they are not able to uh, remain is because of the, the, the fact that certain business constituencies or competitors are holding the key to governance make them fundamentally unstable. And part of us being a public company accessible to any kinds of shareholders is also that it gives us in the long run a stable governance. That's very important.
0: Thank you. Uh, Gosh, (laughs) I'll take a woman in red shirt on the second row there. Dark red. Um, I was just wondering what is your plan as new CEO to maintain the LSE position as definitely the reference in Europe and, well, in London and if possible in Europe and worldwide after the crisis? Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. Actually, I'm an old CEO. I've been there six months now. It's starting to show. Um, The presence and relevance of London Stock Exchange, I would say – we continue clearly in the area of equities to be a leader in Europe. But if you look, for example, at what one of our main functions, which is to raise primary and secondary capital for companies, uh, in the area, for example, primary equity capital, we're by far um, a world champion. I mean, if you look at, and it's obviously time for a pitch here, I think you all felt it, but if you look at how much money we've raised in the last 12 months, it's in excess of $155 billion. That's more than our you know, four nearest competitors put together, and that includes the NYSE, NASDAQ, Deutsche Börse, and Tokyo Stock Exchange. So in the area of primary and secondary capital raising, we are by far the biggest and most successful exchange in the world, and hence the brand that comes attached to this. And this is a vital responsibility not only to the U.K. economy, but to the economy of the world, including the European economy. Out of the 3,500 companies that are listed on the stock exchange, 868 are non-European companies, the foreign companies. It's really the place where companies from around the world, be they Russian, Mexican, Indian, Chinese, or others, come to be listed, either if they want an international listing or if they're seeking for a listing outside of their home country. It's the sort of first port of call. And in that respect, we will not only not do anything to distract from that mission, but continue to working very closely, With all the players and actors of the City of London, it's the banks, it's the accountants, the regulators, it's the lawyers, it's all the players that contribute to making London a special place. We'll continue to work with them to continue to make sure that London remains very, very competitive. I'll give you a simple set of statistics. Um, For one pound of listing revenue that we collect, our fees, I promise you, are very, very reasonable for well, one pound of, of listing revenue we collect, the city of London collects a 1,000 pounds. So that's the investment banks, that's the lawyers, that's the accountants, that's the, all the service companies, the PR firms. So we're clearly, uh, uh, there's a very, very highly leveraged uh, wealth creation or economic value creation mechanism here. And that is clearly a responsibility and a mission we have within, within London, the City of London, for the UK economy. In the secondary area, the, the, the markets have been open to competition. On the back of MIFID, um, there are now about 47 MTFs operating across the board in Europe. We're also starting to compete in between exchange, hence the, the necessity for us a few months ago to substantially revamp and modernize our technology and make it competitive. Because it's about, in the long run, modernizing technology, it's about cutting our costs so we can cut our fees. And the competitive dynamics there is very clear. If you look at Europe, overall, uh, the daily equity turnover in in Western European markets is is a bit less than $30 billion a day. Um, Europe represents about 31% oil GDP. If you look at a comparable uh, economy, the U.S. economy, which represents a bit less than It's about 27% of world GDP, if my memory is correct. Daily equity turnover is $300 billion a day. So if we as exchange, through competition, but through promoting a better business mix, modernize our technology, reduce our costs, basically scale up our services, we can help by lowering our fees, together with the central counterparties, together with the CSD, together with all the other infrastructure participants in the European economy help bring about a substantial boost and increase in traded volume. And that increased liquidity, and, and as we saw, the delta between the U.S. and Europe is one for ten. It's considerable. It's considerable. That boost in liquidity will obviously, first and foremost, benefit companies who will be able to raise capital more easily at a cheaper price. So we also have a responsibility to the corporate world, and and that, of course, leads to job creation and investment, to continue to modernize and and remain very competitive. Now, this will lead eventually, I mean, as in all things, increased competition, commoditized products, particularly in cash equities, leads, of course, to reduction in cost, scaling up the technology, innovation, and possibly down the road, yes, also consolidation. But it's quite important for us in terms of our, our corporate business strategy Uh, to also grow a significant part of our product portfolio, which is not related to equities. We own the largest government bond trading platform in Europe, the most successful corporate retail fixed income trading platform in Italy, the third largest equity derivative exchange, distant third nonetheless, uh, I'll grant you that, but the third largest equity derivative exchange in Europe, EDEM, and many other such such platforms. The second largest electricity trading commodity exchange, EDEX, a large uh, clearing and counterparty entity called uh, CCNG in Italy, a large CSD managing about 2,500 billion euros of custody assets. So there's a lot more to London Stock Exchange than just cash equities. I know this is what the press is focusing on. UK cash equities represent about 17% of our revenues, and the, the challenge and the opportunity for London is to, for us to scale up that portfolio product, expand in post-trade, expand in derivatives, frankly expand in fixed income, because that will make us a more relevant entity within the European sphere and within the global sphere.
0: We're running up against the strategic imperative of going upstairs for a drink um, uh, shortly, so I'm going to take one more question. I think I, think you, I had you sort of guide the third round, i yeah, that's
1: right. Hi. Um, I work in the online financial trading industry, um, especially the leveraged trading industry. So 14 years ago, a company called CMC Markets launched FX online to provide
0: institutional services to the retail world. Um, and um, today what's happening is half of the G10 banks um, are in our industry.
1: So Goldman bought 10% of CMC, um, RBS have launched uh, CFD products which are leveraged, famous for leveraged equity trading um, Deutsche Bank Barclays etc are entering our industry and uh, I just wanted to know your opinion uh, on the future of uh, our industry for brokers like uh, Alpari, CMC etc I think you've had the opportunity for a pitch as well so <laughs> it's, it's only fair it's only mm-hmm. fair uh, what's my opinion of the future of the online industry? Um, I think it's got to be a bright future. Uh, by definition, if you provide an efficient service, electronic trading at the right cost, with the proper design, the proper algorithms, so you to give access to liquidity, you should have a lot of takers. But I think your future is also correlated to the continuous upgrade and improvements in financial infrastructure in Europe. So your future is also dependent on how the risk that you create by generating trading flows is actually cleared and settled. So it's not just about the new technology design, the new product innovation, you know, the cheap fees that you will charge. That's very, very important. And the new business segments you create by giving access to new constituencies of clients certain pockets of retail investors, institutional or whatever. But it's also how you do that and get support, make sure that the, the CCPs, the clearing industry, support that particular, uh, particularly cross-border. Uh, there's, there's a clear issue here in Europe at the moment with a lack of regulatory harmonization uh, of the way CCPs and clearing and CSDs are regulated, for example. So that's very important to, to your business uh, because as the EU looks at it, uh, together with the UK, what comes out of that may be uh, very supportive of a more competitive financial market or may be restrictive uh, as regards future competition. And so your future should be bright, uh, but it's also dependent on what else would be done to make sure that these increased trading flows are, probably, are, are properly cleared and are properly settled. And then I would say in Europe, looking particularly at the U.S., the challenge is pretty vast. Um, we, we still have a lot of wood to chop to make uh, the post-trade uh, infrastructure and, and, and framework in Europe much more efficient than it is today.
0: I'm sure I speak for everybody here when I say this was an extremely uh, thoughtful and thought-provoking uh, presentation this evening with um, lots of, to me, very interesting Ideas about the role of exchanges in the future, bringing derivatives on exchange, and some of the competitive issues you raise, I think, were very interesting as well. So, thank you very much for that. And also to reiterate that there is a drink upstairs for those who would like to join us, and I hope many of you will. On the fifth floor. Uh, those of you who are uh, not particularly fit can go up in the lifts. Uh, anyone who, of course, wants a career in the city, in the thrusting city, will have to run up the stairs um, and show your eagerness. Um, but we hope we'll see a, a number of you up there uh, on the fifth floor in the senior dining room. Um, but before then, let me thank Xavier for coming. Thank you. Very, very exciting